0: Today we'll be in Colossians, uh, mainly focusing on verses 15 through 23. Uh, For those that were in J.P.'s class this morning, uh, this will be review. (laughs) Maybe this message was even more important for you guys since you got to hear it twice. Uh, But we'll be in chapter 1 and we'll be moving quite a bit uh, around in the text and all through different scriptures. So I've got uh, Kelly all loaded up in the back. I praise God for faithful men like Kelly and Rusty that are helping uh, this church. And uh, before we jump into the text, we should look at some of the background of this letter um, to help us understand what and why uh, this, this letter was written and how this should impact us. Uh, the first 14 verses of this chapter uh, can help us with that. First, we wanna see who wrote the letter. Uh, This is an argument among theologians, um, but many of the conservative scholars would agree that Paul is the one uh, who was the author of this letter. And we read the common greeting and the way uh, writers then showed authorship in verse 1, where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Acts 28, uh, it shows us that Paul is under house arrest with a soldier guarding him in Rome. Uh, This is most likely when Colossians was written. Uh, The letter was written along with two others. Uh, One of the letters was to the church of Ephesus, located only about 100 miles away, and the other letter was to a member of the church of Colossae, which was Philemon. There were two men that delivered the letter, and that was Tychicus and the other one was Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon, who desired freedom but needed reconciliation. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, they tell us that about these two men. It says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So we are fairly certain that this letter was written sometime between 59 AD and 62 AD. Soon after this letter was written, there was a massive earthquake that devastated much of that area. Um, Colossae, uh, as I said, was located about 100 miles from Ephesus, but was only about 10 miles from Laodicea in the region of Phrygia, or Asia Minor, which is now known as Turkey. So next we want to look at who was the letter written to. And uh, verse 2 helps us with that as it says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul, he he didn't have an intimate relationship with the members of this church. This church, it was planted uh, by Epaphras, who was a disciple of Paul. Uh, And we read that in verses 7 through 8, where it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I remember when I first met Pastor Chris and Pastor Michael, maybe around six years ago, and uh, Pastor Michael had invited me out to meet with him and Pip as they were uh, doing discipleship. I love that there's a desire within this church for uh, the leadership to want to disciple uh, those within the church, and that's a a blessed thing. And uh, I would see and hear from both Pip and Michael about uh, how highly they had spoken about all of you here uh, they, they shared about your desire to sit under the teaching of the Word and to live that out in love. And what we were thankful for your prayers as we were serving the Lord in the Philippines. Um, often I would find myself in just prayer over you guys with thankfulness. And uh, Paul is thankful for this body of believers as he has given report of their faith and love that was taught to them. And we see that as we go through verses 3 through 6. Paul is kind of writing to the Colossians, kind of giving them insight into his prayer. As he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in you and the truth. So I remember when I, when, uh, when I first went through this text, I was just kind of taken by Paul's real desire and heart to want to express his thankfulness for, uh, for this church. And, and I think he did it because they understood that the grace of God and truth that this was going to be paramount to the rest of this letter the grace is Christ everything that Christ accomplished was so that we his church could be in him how blessed we are to be recipients of this grace now Verses 9 through 10 say, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul wanted them to receive knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the heart of a pastor. This is why I stand before you this morning to preach this message that you also might be filled with wisdom and understanding, knowing the will of God as you are transformed by the word. So that you may bear good fruit in testifying to the grace of God. Let's go into verses 11 through 12. It says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Being strengthened in power is not a strength manufactured within ourselves. The saying, God helps those who help themselves, or to pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, this is, it's not biblical. The strength is given with all power for those that are in Christ through the Holy Spirit which indwells the believer. The Holy Spirit works through the believer despite our weaknesses to help us endure, to be patient and to encounter various trials with joy. The members of the church in Colossae could have had joy as they they could have joy as they lived with thankfulness knowing that Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so maybe you're asking the same question I asked as I began to read through this text. So what is the problem? Why did Paul need to write this letter to the Colossian church? just reading the start of this letter would make me think that Paul should have just written a third letter to the church of Corinth. Many of the letters written to the churches were to guard against heresy. Some churches he needed to warn them against the lurking false teachers and some already had fully embraced false teaching. Elders of the church must guard the flock but there is a level of uncertainty as to what exactly this heresy was. Um, As I studied through it, I read different commentators, uh, tried to dig into the history of this, and I I found that the most concise description of what was happening was uh, through F.F. Bruce. And he said, basically, their teaching seems to have been Jewish. This appears from the part played in it by legal ordinances, circumcision, food regulations, the Sabbath, new moon, and other prescriptions of the Jewish calendar. But it was not the more straightforward Judaism against which the churches of Galatia had to put on their guard. That Judaism was probably introduced in Galatian churches by emissaries, Judaizers from Judea. The Colossian heresy was more probably a Phrygian development in which a local variety of Judaism had been fused or syncretized with a philosophy of non-Jewish origin, an early and simple form of Gnosticism. So all this was presented as a form of advanced teaching for a spiritual elite. The Christians of Colossae were urged to go in for this progressive wisdom and knowledge, this, this, this gnosis, to explore the deeper mysteries of a series of successive initiations until they attained perfection, taloisis. Christian baptism was but a preliminary initiation Those who wish to proceed farther along the path of truth must put off all material elements by pursuing an ascetic regimen until at last they become citizens of the spiritual world, the realm of light. You see, Gnostics, they looked at the material world as evil, From the perspective of the Gnostics, God would have been the evil force creating the material world and Eve was the great redeemer that freed man from having limited knowledge as the serpent pointed her to enlightenment. Most Gnostics would also say that Jesus was an early in time created being, possibly angelic, and he was a messenger of knowledge to help us along our path of self enlightenment. Ever since man first looked for knowledge outside of God, Man in his pursuit of enlightenment has only led him into deep darkness being separated from the giver of all knowledge and understanding. How then can man be reconciled? Let us read through verse 15. This is the start of this beautiful Christological hymn that will be the primary focus of our study. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God The firstborn of all creation. Now, many cults have twisted this verse by separating this verse from the rest of its context to try and only highlight what that verse specifically says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Their argument is that Christ, at a specific time, was created, he is eternally subordinate under the Father. Now Arius, a priest in Alexandria, Egypt, he argued for this belief around the end of the 3rd century to the start of the 4th century. It had been foundational to so many cults that believe in this Arianism. We witness this in the Philippines with large cults like the Iglesia Ni Cristo and the Ang Dating Da'an. In 325 A.D., Constantine, the Roman emperor, he formed a council of Christian bishops in Bithynia, a city of Nicaea, to discuss and come to a consensus on the divine nature of Jesus Christ. From this council, the church was given the Nicene Creed, a beautiful confession that affirmed that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were equal in being and eternality. The Nicene Creed reads, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of gods, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Christ's being an image of the invisible God is best explained by Christ himself as we see it in John chapter 14, verses one through 11. Christ says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus was emphasizing the same thing that is emphasized in the Nicene Creed. I am of the same substance of the Father. The firstborn of all creation, the prototokos. Protos meaning first or first of importance, first in order, which is a major emphasis in this text. Tokos, not tacos, okay? I like tacos, and I like to be first among the tacos. But this is tokos, okay? And this is to bring forth. Uh, we can bring forth the tacos, but for this, we want to bring forth Christ, all right? Prototokos really is to place the emphasis on being the one who has the right, the inheritance, the authority. While we were in the Philippines, we quickly learned the word pananai. The Pangani was the oldest son, and he was given much responsibility. Um, he was given responsibility in the home as a protector, a provider, and he held parental authority. The Philippines, they would grasp this idea of prototikos uh, much easier than we would here in the U.S. Uh, in their scripture, as we read the Angsalita Nang Dios, Everywhere that this firstborn idea would be, it would be read as pananai. And they would fully embrace that and understand it. And I think that as we go through the next two verses in 16 and 17, they'll help us to frame that out a little bit better. And it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. When you hear these verses read, it should immediately remind us of another text in Scripture, which we find in John chapter 1. I like often to have the Scripture explain the Scripture. And so in John chapter 1, we read, uh, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now let's skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John one, it's very similar to this beautiful hymn that we're studying through right now, and. There's a theme that we see constant throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation of God both being creator and redeemer. John 1 shows us in verse 1 through 5 as Christ being the creator God. Verses 9 through 13 show Christ as the redeemer. This is the same as we see in Colossians 1:15 through 17. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is the sovereign co-eternal creator. And now as we walk through verses 18 through 23, we will see Christ as the gracious, merciful redeemer of the church. Verse 15 said that he is the image of the invisible and now in verse 18, it says that he is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 22, highlight the same understanding which says, for through him, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, By the spirit in Ephesians Paul wanted us to see this temple language and understand that the church was now the temple of the living God and Christ is the cornerstone in Christ all things are held together in Colossians Paul is highlighting this structure not only being a temple for the living God but the structure is organic it's alive Christ being the head and the church being his body we are all held together by him and for him. This was essential doctrine for the Reformation as they wanted the church to be built upon Christ alone and by the scriptures alone, which was the teaching of the apostles. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the, de- from the dead. This is, verse 15 showed us that he was the firstborn of all creation. And now we see Paul wanting the church to remember the resurrection and Christ's power over death, and his atoning work on the cross for his elect that would birth the church. Now we who are dead in our sins and trespasses can be made alive in him, that in everything he might be preeminent. Pro you is the Greek word that we translate to preeminence in English. And it means to be first, holding the first place, the same language, the same push, towards understanding of Christ being the first the most the utmost the highest in a culture that held the pursuit of knowledge as the highest goal and exercising good works like circumcision baptism food regulations as a path towards becoming spiritual citizens of this realm of light the church needed to understand this foundational truth that it was not about their works but everything to do with being in Christ Not only is Christ preeminent, but there is no other, as we read earlier in John 14, that he is the way, the only way, the truth, the full embodiment of the truth, and he is the life, and outside of Christ is darkness and death. Verse 19 says that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God can only dwell in a place of absolute holiness. Christ is the embodiment of what it is to be holy. Verse 20 says, And through him to, be, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is grace. I see this verse pointing us to the beautiful covenant of redemption. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Charles Hodge listed eight promises the Father gave to the Son in this pact made in eternity before the foundations of the earth. Briefly, they are that God would form a purified church for his Son, that the Son would receive the Spirit without measure, that he would be ever-present to support him, that he would deliver him from death and exalt him to his right hand, and that he would have the Holy Spirit to send to whom he willed, that all the Father gave to him would come to him, and none of these be lost, that multitudes would partake of his redemption, and his messianic kingdom, that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Now Paul transitions here from illuminating Christ to now reminding us of our depravity. What an important doctrine, especially to those who think they might attain eternal security through their own works. Paul reminds them by saying, verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Only in Christ can we be declared holy. This is Christ's work of justification. We being sinners who are alienated or literally under the ownership of, of Satan are being made holy after being declared holy by his blood shed on the cross for those who have placed their faith in Christ alone now verse 23 it says if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which has become which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister those who have been reconciled will persevere. Not through their own strength or knowledge, but through Christ justifying us and the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us, this Holy Spirit who seals us which Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, when he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Paul wanted the church to know that he became a minister to be a proclaimer. The proclaimer, the the gospel must be proclaimed. The pressure that the church of Colossae experienced to harmonize or to syncretize, it's not much different than what the church today faces. There are false teachers and churches that want you to think that you can be self-empowered. Every day I see these preachers being liked and shared on social media platforms. I've heard so many push to try and make the church more culturally relevant. Music in many churches has become man-centered. Preaching is pragmatic and prayer reduced to a grocery list. The church, which should be set afire, is often lukewarm. We should desire to have our church held together by Christ instead of the latest worldly trends. You know, 30 years after this letter was read to the Colossians and to the church of Laodicea, we read in Revelation 3 the course that they took. As we read Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, hear these words, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white and wear white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, let us be zealous, on fire, proclaimers of the gospel and not lukewarm like the Laodiceans. For those that are here today and have been enticed by the temptations of this world, those of you who may not want to acknowledge your need for a savior, but have rested in your worldly prosperity, understand that you, just like the Laodiceans, are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, just where I was before Christ revealed his grace to me. Cry out to the one who can save you. Cry out to him. I want to close our time with a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision. And as I read this prayer, I pray that it would be our prayer. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and go into prayer. Thou blessed spirit, author of all grace and comfort. Come, work repentance in our souls. Represent sin to me in its odious colors that we may hate it. Melt our hearts by the majesty and mercy of you, our God. Show us our ruined selves and help there is in you. Teach us to behold you are the creator. Your ability to save, your arms outstretched. your heart big for us. May we confide in your power and love. Commit our souls to you without reserve. Bear your image, observe your laws, pursue your service, and be through time and eternity a monument to your grace, a trophy to your victory. Make us willing to be saved in your way, perceiving nothing in ourselves, but all in Jesus. Help us not only to receive Christ, but to walk in him, to depend upon him, to be conformed to him, Follow him imperfect, but still pressing forward. Not complaining of our labor, but valuing rest. Not murmuring under trials, but thankful for our state. Lord, give us faith, which is the means of salvation and the principle and medium of all godliness. May we be saved by grace through faith. Live by faith, feel the joy of faith, do the work of faith. Perceive nothing in ourselves. May we find in Christ wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. To you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, receive all glory, honor, and praise. Amen.